They were tired. I was tired. But I'm not anymore. It's great to be with you. I'm a native of Southern California and um, spent a few years in Phoenix and left as quickly as humanly possible. And we ended up on the far east coast in South Carolina where we are a part of the 3DM um, what we would call core team that's headquartered there in a little sleepy resort town called Polly's Island, South Carolina. So if you're ever over there and you need somewhere to, to bunk up, we'd love to have you. We've been treated incredibly well since we've been here in Alaska. It's my first trip. Um, but everybody we've run into is very hospitable and generous. And um, yesterday, even someone took us out on their little plane and flew us around Anchorage. And we got to see all kinds of fun things like meese and... Um, that's how you say plural moose, right? Geese, goose. All right, never mind. So <clears throat> it's, it, it's just been an incredible experience um, being out here. But more than anything else, getting to um, connect with Brad and Chris, who, as Brad said, uh, I met in my hometown many, many months ago. And we've uh, forged a relationship um, really revolving around our common passion to simply live out the life that we were created for. Sometimes this whole Christianity thing gets so complex and so convoluted that you just start to wonder whether we could really do it. And it becomes something that I think oftentimes we begin to believe is for the professionals, for the, 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 the seminary trained, the educated, the ones with all the certificates and degrees on their wall. But you, you have to understand that the heart of God from the beginning of creation has not been for the trained professionals but his heart has been that every human being would learn to live into the fullness of what they were created for. And so over the months we've been sharing together simply the ways that we're learning how to do that in our own respective context. And so everything I'm about to share with you over the next few minutes is really just simply the overflow of the life that I've been learning to live um, over uh, the last um, maybe 10 or 15 years. I want to start by sharing with you a, a simple story. I met a woman. It's the beginning of a lot of good stories. I, I met a woman and fell in love. This was after I finished up my um, undergrad degree in Southern California. And um, we fell in love and were married on September 2nd, 2001. We charted a course on our honeymoon for Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Mm. The weather was warm. The sky was beautiful. And there was my bride. And we enjoyed incredible few days of sightseeing and enjoying all the, the just the, the novelties of this culture that, uh, interestingly, I resonate with because I'm half Mexican, believe it or not. I don't look it, of course, but I am. And um, my wife, not being half Mexican and not speaking Spanish, was as lost as a goose in Mexico. But she trusted me and we were there together to have fun and celebrate our, our, new, our new marriage. And, and we were just... Just, you know, as happy as could be, which is what a honeymoon's all about. As we were journeying through town one uh, afternoon, we noticed a little Southern Baptist church, which is rare in anywhere in Mexico because the predominant religion or expression of faith in Mexico is through the Catholic church. And so we wandered in and met some fine people. And the woman who is the, um, the, the co-pastor with her husband, uh, met us and welcomed us in and shared that her husband was away, but that if we returned in a couple of days, we could meet him. And she wanted us to meet him because we were as well in ministry and wanted to share in some friendship and fellowship, as they say. And um, so we came back a couple of days later 
it was the day before we were supposed to depart to return home. We'd been there just the better part of a, uh, a week and a half. And um, on September 11th, 2001, we got out of bed. We got ready. We journeyed downtown to this little Southern Baptist church and um, knocked on the, the front doors. And nobody answered. We opened and called out for anybody. And they said, quick, come, come back here. So we walked into this back room where there was a small television set that hardly, hardly got reception, but just enough reception to be able to see that, that they were apparently watching a movie. That's what it seemed like when we walked in the room. It was as if they were watching a diehard movie of sorts. And um, as we looked at the screen and began to ask them what they were watching, they said, this is happening right now in the U.S. And as we watched one building burning, clearly one of the Twin Towers, we noticed that another plane was flying and flew into the second tower. And um, that morning, um, our country came under attack. And there in Mexico, um, in a world that seemed to be more of a dream than anything else, the dream turned to a nightmare. And what felt safe became incredibly unsafe. And the securities slipped from beneath our feet and we found ourselves incredibly insecure in a foreign place where we didn't know anybody. The lines back into the States, whether they were busy or cut off, made it impossible for us to reach our family. We had run to the end of our financial budget for our honeymoon. So we were without any connection back home, without any money uh, in a foreign place with people who spoke for the most part a foreign language. And it was just this incredibly significant moment in our life where everything that seemed to be safe and secure and steady suddenly wasn't. Some of you can recall a similar moment maybe, or you've heard the stories of that moment, March 27th, 1964, where an earthquake of the magnitude of 9.2 struck off the coast of this beautiful city and shook the land so powerfully that Buildings that were thought to have been indestructible were falling down like Lego blocks and waves of water washing up and dissolving foundations. And so homes and businesses and and buildings and freeways and highways and were, were, were shaken so much that it was it was almost difficult to tell in the aftermath where anything was because things were moved hundreds of feet Things that stood tall were suddenly tumbling and it was like in a moment the whole city of Anchorage was raised by the power of this destructive force of an earthquake and the ensuing tsunami. These are moments in the history of humanity where we are reminded again and again that this world is shaking and the, th- the things of this world, sometimes the things that we put most of our security and our identity in are liable to this shaking. A shaking that began all the way back in Genesis 3. Where our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to remove themselves from the protection and provision of God and started an earthquake that still has the aftershocks resonating in our life today. I've, I've given us a couple of these significant um, shakings, but let's think of the other areas of our lives that have been shaken, not just the earth beneath our feet, not just 
uh, in terms of the, the political adversaries or the, 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 the national adversaries of these terrorist groups. But think of our marriages, the institution of marriage. Again, a trusted institution that over the many years is now becoming as untrustworthy as the buildings that came down in the aftermath of earthquakes or the twin towers that came tumbling down. It's not just marriages, but it's the finances. My wife and I buying a brand new home in Phoenix, Arizona, and falling in love with our home and pouring tons of our time, energy, and resource only to find in the next three months that our home would be worth less than half of what we paid for it. As the economy of our country fell under and my wife and I wrestling in the aftermath of this massive crisis. And so whether it's political or whether it's religious, whether it's the ground beneath us, the reality is our world is constantly experiencing the rumblings of the earthquake, whether it's physical or social or relational or spiritual or political. The reality is the world around us is shaking and people are constantly getting caught in the the aftermath, the rubble that has come tumbling down. And there's no question as we look around, whether at the news or whether we look around our own towns, even our own neighborhoods, that we see how Deeply, we are being affected by this kind of shaking, not just the earth shaking, but a cultural shaking. Where we find a new generation of people growing up who no longer trust marriage, a new generation of people growing up who don't trust our political leaders, a new generation growing up not knowing how to trust family, beginning to try and pioneer their own ways and struggling all the while. Here's a simple question in the realities of the world that we live in that God created and that in so many ways we've invited destructive forces into. Here's the question. How is it that we respond in the midst of all of these pressures? How do we respond in the midst of the aftermath of these kinds of shakings, this kind of Earthquake. Well, I know that my own personal temptation, my own default, oftentimes under pressure, can be to default to a position of self preservation. To make sure that I take care of me, myself, and I, or me and mine, and to let other people take care of themselves. I, w- I want us to hear a story because in the, in the years after 9 11, I've paid close attention to the way that our country has viewed that incident. And on one hand, you have the sobering reality that we as a nation aren't always as safe as we think we are. And on the other hand, we have the stories of highlighting the incredible feats of heroism that took place during the crisis and in the months and years afterward. I want us to hear the story of a a young man named Wells Crowthers because I want us to hear what this young man did in the midst of the pressures and the crisis that faced him. Listen to this story. It was not Wells Crowther's job to save anyone's life on September 11th. He worked for Sandler O'Neill and partners on the 104th floor of the South Tower as an equities trader. 
At about 9 o'clock that morning, he was on the phone in his office doing business as usual. But later, his body would be recovered from the lobby along with other New York firefighters. Having worked as a volunteer firefighter as a teenager, when disaster struck, Wells Crowther sprung into action. They sat bloody and petrified, the lights out, smoke engulfing the room and pain searing through their bodies. There was no escape from where they were in the South Tower in pieces after being hit by United Airlines Flight 175, as far as they could tell. Then out of nowhere, a young man burst in and took control in a strong and authoritative voice. He directed them to the stairway, which was veiled by darkness, wreckage and haze, telling the injured to get out and the healthy to help them down. I see this incredible hero running back and forth and saving the day, recalled Judy Wayne. In his mind, he had a duty to do to save people. He's definitely my guardian angel. No ifs, ands, or buts, because without him, we would still be sitting there waiting until the building came down upon us, echoes Lynn Young. Wayne and Young were separated by a few minutes and a few floors that day, but they share a similar story and a single hero, this young man named Wells Crowther. Both women credit the equities trader and volunteer firefighter with saving their lives and dozens of others on that fateful day of September 11th. Crowther has been credited with saving at least 18 lives that day, if not more. One of the people he helped escape, Ling Young, keeps a framed photo of him in her home. He exited and entered the building at least three times, helping evacuate trapped victims. He ultimately perished when he entered the building one last time before it collapsed with other firefighters, making their way up the South Tower with the jaws of life to free more people. His body was recovered on March 19th, 2002. Wells Crowther was an investment banker, not a firefighter or a police officer. He could have easily just exited the building and got himself to safety with no shame whatsoever. But instead, he found the courage to go above and beyond what was required of him helping many people out of the tower and saving countless lives. You see, when God created the world and put us into the world, he didn't have any of these things in mind. You remember the account in Genesis, that everything that God would create, he would finish and he would step back and he would look almost as a painter upon his masterpiece, as a parent upon their children with pride and joy in his eyes. And the scripture says he would say it is good. But it doesn't take long to look into the world we live in, even into our own communities. And for some of us, if we're honest, even into our own homes to realize that not everything is good. And the temptation for some of us will be to see the lack of goodness in the world and the lives that we live and to do our best to take care of ourselves, to save ourselves, maybe our spouses, maybe our kids. And as Christians, many of us living life in the church, waiting for the day when Jesus returns and holding on for dear life until that moment. We've got our ticket. 
We're waiting for the Lord to come. And dear God, don't let too much bad stuff happen between now and then. But that wasn't the heartbeat of Wells Crowther, and it's not the heartbeat of God. Because even though the very thing that God created and said is good, even in the face of the decision that Adam and Eve made back in the garden that, quite frankly, we continue to make today, that invites the destructive brokenness, dysfunction of our flesh into the good thing. The heart of God hasn't changed because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The heart of God is still to make things good. And so he's not changed his mind. He's not scrapped the earth and started over again. But he's a good God. He's a good king. He's a good dad who looks into the brokenness of what we've created and says, my heart is to make that good. And I think it's important for us to understand that if we're going to understand in part the reason that we're here on the earth. And I want us to just turn together, if you have a Bible with you, to Matthew chapter 28. And I'm going to read from a very, I think, popular passage that will help us understand the invitation that God is still making to every single one of us today. The invitation that Wells Crowther heard in the face of impending sacrifice and suffering. The invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples. The invitation that Jesus still gives to every single one of us who would consider ourselves one of his followers. Here's, here's the heartbeat of the Father spoken through the mouth of Jesus in the face of brokenness of the world that we live in. Matthew 28, verse 18. These are the last words of this gospel. Then Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. You see, if we're not careful, we're going to hear a scripture like this and we're going to say, that's awesome. We're called to be Jesus's disciples and to go make disciples. And so we're going to do all kinds of things to hopefully meet that goal. But the reality is, if we don't hear what's beneath this invitation, if we don't hear the heartbeat of God in this invitation, we can miss it altogether because the invitation from Jesus to the disciples is to engage in the very same activity that Jesus was engaged with. Nothing more, nothing less. And here was the activity that Jesus was engaged with. The very things that have become broken, Jesus came to mend. Where there was hopelessness, he came to bring hope. Where there was despair, he came to bring joy. Where there was sickness, he came to bring healing. Where there was division, he came to bring reconciliation. Where there was death, he came to bring life. That's the activity of Jesus. That's the heart of the Father 
to say that he's not content to let things stay broken, but his heart is to reach into the world that he created and to begin by the authority of his presence and power to change things so that they once again can be good. And the invitation by the father is not that we would stand on the sideline like cheerleaders and say, go Jesus, go Jesus. But that we would come alongside of Jesus and be trained together with him to learn how to function in the way that he functioned so that we too could represent the heart of God and engage in a broken and dysfunctional and hopeless and despairing world. And once again, begin to usher in his presence and his power so that the things that have been broken could be once again mended the things that have become bad could once again become good. That's the invitation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a member of God's family. It's, it's not to join some friends on a cruise ship, but to enlist into his family, which is also an army, and learn how to take our place on the battleship. The invitation isn't just to come and get healed, but to become those who heal. Not just to receive an invitation to come and be mended, but to be those who go and share the mending power of Jesus with those who are still broken. You see, the invitation for us is not just simply to come and be a part of a refugee camp where we can ourselves experience his redeeming power but to also be trained so that we might together with Jesus go into a world and bring that mending and reconciling and redeeming power with us. I noticed earlier while we were worshiping in the first service, those words up there on the wall. That's you guys, right? That's you guys. It's your mantra, it's your vision, your mission statement. This is who you are, I would imagine. And I think it's absolutely wonderful because quite frankly, this is what I'm talking about. We save the lost because we ourselves have first been saved. We grow the found because we ourselves are being grown and we send the empowered because we ourselves are empowered. This is the invitation from Jesus to become part of his rescue team to be trained in such a way that we can like him engage in the brokenness and see God make bad things become good that sounds good doesn't it yeah amen all right maybe it's just me maybe I'm just excited about this here's what I want us to do I want us to just take a look at four things that will help us begin to wrestle with the question of what does it mean to be a part of God's rescue team? Is that helpful? Because I think for us, for many of us, we're not content to just be a part of the refugee camp or the cruise ship. We know deep down inside that God is calling us to something more. Because deep down inside, we feel the heartbeat of God that beat inside of Wells Crowther, that beat inside of Jesus that is beating inside of us, that there's more. 
four things about what it means to be a part of the rescue team. And I want you to write these down. If you've got some notes, jot a little note down or put it in your Bible somewhere. I don't know. But I want to encourage you to come back to these things in the days and weeks to come as you're allowing God to press into your heart about what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Okay, the first thing that we need to understand if we're going to be a part of the rescue team is that the rescue team is always marked by compassion. Always marked by compassion. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read there in verse 40. Because Jesus is our rescue team leader. And he's going to demonstrate for us what it means to function as members of the rescue team. As we look into his life and see how he functioned. In in chapter 1 verse 40, it says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, you have to understand what's going on here. In in the world that Jesus lived in, there was a, a common understanding amongst the religious leaders and amongst the Jewish people about these people called lepers and all of those who would be considered to be unclean. You see, in that culture, if there was any mark or any residue or any sign that you might not be right with God, such as sickness or, 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 or disease, or, you know, if your left arm was a little bit shorter than your right arm, oftentimes they would take on the understanding that it meant that you had been cursed by God. And because you had become unclean in their eyes, you couldn't be anywhere near those people who were considered clean because in those religious leaders view, the unclean thing would make the clean thing unclean. Did you get that? Yeah, and so these people who were unclean would have to walk around in public literally with their hair all messed up, wearing raggedy clothes, and they would have to shout at the top of their lungs, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. So that those who wanted to be quote unquote, right with God could keep their distance because you see the Pharisees, the lay leaders of the Jewish movement remembered the days of exile when God had let his people as they left his protection be exiled into Assyria by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar took them and put them in his land. And while they were there, the Israelites began to co-mingle with the locals and began to adopt their practices and their values and fell into incredible trouble. And so the Pharisees, in their attempt to never again lead the Jewish people into this kind of commingling, basically created as much distance as humanly possible between themselves and anything that might represent something besides God. Their response was a response of insecurity and fear. Something that Jesus came to overcome. And so as we go back to the story with this man on his knees saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. It says in verse 41, Jesus sighed. You can just imagine Jesus going, this isn't the way my father meant it to be. Well, if Jesus sighed, I can promise you the crowd gasped 
Because the next verse says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Because you see, Jesus came to help the people of God understand something. That the authority of the Father that was given to Jesus through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit isn't just any authority and power. It is the ultimate authority and power. And so for the Pharisees, their understanding of clean and unclean, of when the kingdom of God encountered the kingdom of this world, is that the kingdom of the world overcame the kingdom of God. And Jesus came to help them understand it's not so. But the things of the kingdom of God are authoritative and powerful enough to overcome the kingdom of the world. So in other words, Jesus came to help them understand that it's actually not the clean thing that makes the, I mean, the unclean thing that makes the clean thing unclean, but it's the clean thing. The presence of God that makes the unclean thing clean. Totally redefining what it meant to be on mission for God as a part of his rescue team. That the heart of God is a heart of compassion. Another translation actually of the scripture says that Jesus with compassion reached out and touched the man. You see, compassion begins when we choose to believe that the authority of the presence and power of God living in us is actually greater than the power of the enemy. So that we'll actually begin to reach out beyond the comfort of our own domains and reach into the brokenness and dysfunction of the world around us. Whether that dysfunction is across the street, whether that dysfunction is in another part of town, or whether that dysfunction is sitting at your kitchen table over dinner. The second thing we have to understand about being a part of the rescue team is that it's not only an expression of compassion, but it's an expression of community. My wife and I, when we were a bit younger, and a bit more idealistic with our two young children, we chose to move from San Diego, yeah, like heaven on earth, and we moved up to South Central Los Angeles to a little town called Compton, California, right? The town that most of us have heard through rap songs by Snoop Doggy Dog and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, this is a real place. We moved up there. We had been warned, but we thought, you know what? God's awesome. He's big. We're going to go, and we're going to kick butt for Jesus' name and awesome. And so we got up there, and within the first couple of hours, it was like being in Alaska. Like, I was here for like three hours before somebody told me about how the bears maul people, how wolves eat people and steal children. And I mean, it's just like, don't run, don't do anything. I was afraid to leave the car, leave the house. I mean, I didn't want to go anywhere in Anchorage because I was assured that some moose was going to come and like beat me up or something. I, it was, you hear all these stories. Well, the stories about Compton are absolutely true. So at night, you have to be careful about walking down any street because you could be accosted, mugged, beaten, raped, killed. You can't drive down certain streets after dark because you could be mistaken for a rival gang member and they will open fire on you. There were police helicopters that literally put a spotlight in our backyard virtually every day. The city was broken. The local government and police were corrupt. And we stepped into this crazy place believing in our hearts that the one who lived in us was greater than the one who lived in this town. And we went from, 
a kind of naive boldness and confidence straight into the pit of sober despair as we realized that it's really hard when you've got two little kids to know how to engage in a world that is so broken that you begin to find yourself not wanting to engage too much because you, you, you don't want them to rub off on you. You don't want the brokenness of how these other children talk because of the movies and the TV shows that they watch to begin to influence your kids. You, you don't want the drugs and the alcohol. You don't want the brokenness of the abuse, the generational sins that have gone on for, for multiple years to begin to taint your beautiful little children. And I'm the last one to say, oh, you know, just jump into the mission field naive and just trust God. There's a kind of wisdom. Jesus says we need to be as as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. Well, this this was this was the school for that for my wife and I. And as we would reach out and engage with the local community, we began to get some traction and we, we practiced day in and day out just praying, saying, dear God, help us to have the courage not just to be dumb and do just crazy things for the sake of being crazy, but to really obey where you're leading us. And as we did that, we began to develop relationships with more of the local community. We were personally responsible for like, you know, the young adults which is kind of everybody after high school all the way through their mid to late 30s. And somehow that's a young adult nowadays, you know. And so we're engaging with these folks and we're reaching out and we're having all kinds of traction and seeing all kinds of breakthrough out on the streets and in the neighborhoods and in the Starbucks. There was one Starbucks there. And at the movie theaters and, and, and in the re- local restaurants. And we're, I mean, it's just amazing. We're seeing all this stuff. But little by little, my wife and I realize that we're getting more and more tired. We're being worn down because it's like a black hole of need there. And as much as the life of God lives in us. It's being sucked out as quickly as we can replenish ourselves until one day the Lord begins to speak to us. Son, I didn't create you to do this on your own. And I said, God, I'm not. I've got my wife and my two kids. And he said, no, no, you're doing it on your own. And so the Lord began through a a gracious process to redefine for me what it meant to be a family on mission. In other words, what it meant to, to be the people of God engaging as the rescue team in this world. I thought my wife and I and our couple of kids had, had what it took to, to do this on our own. But turn with me to Mark chapter 3. It's just a, a few pages later. And it's this moment where Jesus is teaching in someone's house. In verse 31 of chapter 3, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Because you have to remember, by this time, they're really worried about Jesus. He seems to have a bit of a messianic complex. And it says in verse 32, A crowd was sitting around... That was a joke. A crowd was sitting around him. It's all right. The first service didn't get it either. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Fair enough. Jesus' response is borderline offensive at this point. And in that culture, it would have been more offensive than it is in our culture. Because you would never have sought to disrespect your family, especially your mom and dad, publicly. It's almost like Jesus disowns them, but he's not. Listen to what he's doing. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. What Jesus was doing for them was redefining what it meant to be a part of the family of God. Because in our westernized, individualized, 
you know, autonomous culture, we've decided that what it means to be family is mom, dad, and 2.3 kids and a dog and a white picket fence out in the suburbs. And that's really the American dream, isn't it? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a spouse and two kids. I've got a spouse and two kids. Got rid of the dog. No. But we have an idea of what it means to be family, don't we? And Jesus was redefining it because what he was trying to help us understand is that to be a part of a rescue team, we can't do it alone. We can't do it with just myself, my spouse, and my two kids. We needed to invite other people into this adventure. Because like the tribes of Africa say, it takes a village to raise a child. It also requires more than one family to be on mission. Because in any other culture in the world that hasn't been westernized, they still understand that it's the extended family full of aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins and grandpas and grandmas and kids and grandkids that actually provide the number of people and the resources amongst those people to sustain the weight of engaging in the world that we're engaging in. The early church was so incredibly effective, not because Paul was a good preacher or Peter was a good preacher, but because they continued to do exactly what Jesus taught them how to do. They trained people how to be the family of God and how to go on mission together. And it's been amazing. Brad and Chris have been sharing with me about this fall that you guys have made a a big press for life groups. Life groups have the opportunity to become the vehicle for family on mission that Jesus is encouraging us toward here so that we would begin to see our family not as those who are just related by blood, but those who are related also by spirit and those who are related to us by a common vision for how we're going to engage in the brokenness of the world around us. So to be a part of the rescue team, we've we've got to be more than two or three people. We've got to express the compassion of God by reaching out. We've got to learn how to do this in the context of a bigger family called the extended family. Yeah, something like maybe like a life group. And um, the third thing is we've got to learn how to invite people into a story that is bigger than their story. Here's, Here's why. Because when I was coming out of high school, the security that I stepped into the next season of life, which was college on, was really the kind of security of my parents' marriage. Growing up, all of my friends called my mom and dad, mom and dad. The reason is because I honestly can't remember, but one of my friends growing up, and I'm I'm, I'm a bit of an extrovert, so I had lots of friends, um, and I couldn't remember but one friend whose parents were still married. And so... Coming to our house and seeing my mom and dad who, you know, were married from the beginning and had us and, were, you know, they're our only parents and we didn't split Christmases and Thanksgivings and all those things. It, it, it became the reference point, the orientating point for all of my friends. I didn't realize this then. I look back on it and I see it hindsight, you know, 2020. But my parents' marriage served as the kind of foundational ground upon which we as kids stood on to find our security about how we were going to engage in life. And so I went away to college standing on this security and, you know, 
had my experiences in college, came home after the second year in college to find that my parents were announcing their divorce. So you can only imagine how difficult it was years later to meet a woman of my dreams, to fall in love, and to begin as a Christian, as a new Christian at that time, to try and figure out and make sense of why in the world would I want to get married? Because every marriage I had known previously had ended in disaster. And as a matter of fact, the statistics in our country alone are staggering and terrifying. No wonder young people don't want to get married anymore. I mean, you almost get married so you can go through your divorce and get on to your second marriage. Modern Family, one of the most popular TV shows right now, is our society telling us we're so hungry for family, we can't figure it out. But even in the brokenness, we'll just put all that brokenness together and we'll do a, we'll do a blended family. Because we're hungry for family. But see, in the aftermath of the wreckage of my parents' divorce, and it was an ugly one, God bless them, um, the story of my life was broken in the brokenness of their divorce. And so as I was looking to the future and trying to make sense of what I was going to do with this woman that I was in love with, I needed a story. I needed a story that was bigger than the story of my parents. It was bigger than the story of my life up to that point. I needed a story that was so big that it could, with both hands, kind of pick up and gather the broken pieces of my own life story and hold them and make sense of them and give me hope for the future. As Christians, as we invite people into our lives our lives need to tell the story of something bigger than the brokenness of our life. But our, the story of our lives need to tell a bigger story, the story of God's redemption. Does your marriage speak of the redeeming power of God? And if you've been divorced and you're remarried, does your marriage now speak of the redeeming power of God? You don't need to go back and cry over spilt milk from 12 years ago. Both of my parents are remarried. Both of them have become Christians. And when I pray for them and with them, I pray for their marriages today that God would bless them and that their marriages today would be a, a picture, a story of God's awesome, redeeming, reconciling power. Do our marriages speak to the story of God who is the great redeemer? Do our families speak to the story of God who is the great redeemer, do the way we behave at work and the way that we engage with our neighbors, does it tell a story of the awesome saving power of God? The last thing about being a part of the rescue team, we've got compassion, we've got community, we've got connecting story. The final one is compass. You'll notice all these words start with the letter C. It helps me to remember things a little bit easier. But here's just the, the, the quick of it. For many of us, we've grown up in a world that is broken and we've, in many ways, picked up ways of living that reflect the ways of the world, right? So through TV shows and through movies and through magazines 
and through our experience with friends in school and in college, in the workplace, we're constantly bombarded by a world that is telling us the values that we should live by, the things that we should elevate to prominence and priority, and that those should determine the way that we live our life. Well, here's the problem. That in a world that is living in the aftermath of the wreckage of so many different cultural, physical, relational, political, social, you know, spiritual upheavals and earthquakes, where everybody is confused, everybody is trying to find their own reference point. So if you've ever heard of the phrase post-modernity, all that phrase means is it's a way of trying to describe a generation of people who are growing up in a world with no fixed reference points. And who each have decided that their way is the right way because who's to tell them they're wrong? And so it becomes a lifestyle of relativity. What's good for you is good for you. And what's good for me is good for me. And as long as we don't hurt each other, everything should be all right, right? And yet it's still these same marriages that are falling apart, these same families that are falling apart. It's still these same people that, whose lives are being destroyed by drugs and alcohol and addiction climbing the ladder of success in their careers, pursuing the greener pastures of other relationships. The way of being married, the way of being family, even for us in the church, the way of being church 50 years ago isn't necessarily going to work today. Because in our country, including Alaska, the percentages are this. That with the boomer generation, there's about 37-ish percent of those who go to church on a regular basis and who would consider themselves evangelical Christians. In Gen X, that generation... Um, and you know who you, you folks are. The Gen X generation, there's about, I don't know, I think it's about 16%, 17% of the people who are engaged in church and would consider themselves evangelical Christians. For Gen Y, which is anybody under the age of 34 right now, it's a 4%. 4%. Because you see the roadmaps that we've passed on to the new generation don't work. They don't work. Even the roadmaps I learned in seminary, I mean, these professors who had been around for decades and these one, they're wonderful men and women of God, but they would pull off the maps off the, you know, the, off the shelves of theology and philosophy and metaphysics and all this fun stuff. And they would blow them off and they would unravel them there at the table of, of, of learning. And they would show us and they would point out all the reference points and they would tell me, hey, this is how you engage with people is how you communicate the gospel. This is how you lead a church. This is how you do all of these things. And quite frankly, my entire experience through seminary was an experience of saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what these maps represent. Because all of these fixed points, all of these monuments that you've raised up over the years in different denominations and in different traditions, they no longer make sense in the world that I'm living in. Who will 
train me and lead me in the midst of a world that is constantly changing, that is constantly evolving, where you have to get a new iPhone like every year now because you can't keep up with the change in technology. In a world like that where maps no longer work, the thing that still does work is a compass. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not about learning to follow doctrine or good theological perspective or good studies or the way that we did it back when unless they are empowering us to learn how to follow the spirit of Jesus today for our particular context, for our particular challenges. We need to learn like Jesus trained his disciples, how to hear the voice of the father in any given moment and to respond, how to discern due north. Even when the roads are lost so that we can navigate our way through life and marriage and family, business, physical health, politics, the challenges that our city faces. Let me just finish very quickly because I want you to understand why I'm so passionate about this. Because when I got done with college, I went to five schools in four years. How I graduated, I have no idea. But that's an indication to you of who I was at that time in my life. I was absolutely lost. I couldn't find myself in the light. I mean, it was amazing. I was disoriented, confused. The, the thing that I had trusted in and stood on for my orientation, my parents' marriage was gone now. Our family had fallen apart. I had siblings who were trying to commit suicide, suddenly addicted to drugs. I myself got caught up in all kinds of awful things through my time in college, all because I had no way of orientating myself. And so I, I felt like the person who's, you know, done this before you're going to do pin the tail on the donkey and you just kind of stand up and you're so confused and disoriented. You don't know which way you're going. If it's up, down, left, right, if it's the right way or the wrong way. But that's where I was when I got done with college. My older brother who had become a Christian while we were in high school and had scared me half to death every time we talked about heaven and hell and all this stuff. I, thought, oh. I remember through those five, four years of college, him visiting me wherever school I went to and him showing up at my dormitory. I still remember when I went to Sacramento state my first year and he showed up and um, within about 30 minutes of him showing up to come and visit me, I said, I, I have to go. I need to go meet one of my friends for a project that we're working on. I said, okay, I went and I came back as high as a kite. A few hours later, I got to go meet with one of my friends, talk about a project. I would go and come back as high as a kite. Now, I knew that he knew, that I knew that he knew, that I knew that he knew what I was doing. And I knew that he knew that I knew that he knew that I knew that he didn't approve of what I was engaged in. But he loved me nonetheless. He expressed the compassion of God, not in judgment, but in care. 
And so when I got done with college, him living in San Diego, he invited me to come live with a group of young men who lived together with him in a condo in La Jolla, California. And I was reluctant to go because I knew my brother was a Christian and I didn't like being around him because I knew that he didn't always agree with the lifestyle that I was living. But there was something, something just deep down inside that was relatively appealing about him because in the midst of the brokenness of my family life, he was the one thing that seemed to be somewhat stable. And so I eventually conceded. I moved down to La Jolla. I moved in with this group of guys and um, was just absolutely shocked and didn't know how to make sense of these guys. These, these guys who were so gracious to each other and they shared everything they had with one another. And it wasn't my food or your food, but it's our food. And it's not your car, or my car, but it's our car. And they would seek to outserve each other. And it was such a, a weird change. And they would sit and they would hold hands and pray and, and they would hug and they would cry on each other's shoulders. And quite frankly, I, I didn't know what to make it. I'd never seen men expressing such affection for each other unless, you know, you know, and so, you know, I, I didn't know what to make of it. I honestly didn't. I was just confused, but, but still drawn and attracted to this kind of relationship that they were enjoying. And as they would offer that same compassion to me, I at times would, would resist it and reject it for fear of what it might mean. Because remember, I had been in relationships before and they had all fallen down on me. And wherever they went, they would invite me to come along. And whenever they would pray, they would invite me to pray. Whenever they would do Bible study, they would invite me to do Bible study. And whenever their families would come into town, they would invite me to go to meals with them. And before you know it, I felt like I was becoming a part of their family, not just the family of these guys who live in the house, but the the extended family of all their other relationships who seemed to share this kind of common faith. And as I hung out with these people and was overwhelmed by this invitation into their family, I began to pick up on the fact that they all shared a common story. It didn't matter whether they were Korean or Japanese or Chinese or Filipino or Mexican or African-American or Jamaican. It didn't matter whether they were from Eastern Europe. And I'm telling you, the spread in Southern California is beautiful. And in that house, it was equally as beautiful, the diversity. And it didn't matter where they came from as much as it mattered who they were and whose they were. And as I was welcomed into this family, I began to discover the story of this family when they would talk about this person called Jesus. Until one day on October 31st, 1999, my brother took me out for his birthday. That's right. We went to a little restaurant called Islands and we sat down over dinner over a hamburger and he said, man, you've been with us for about five months. How are you doing? I don't know why it was, it was like the first time in my life that I said, I'm not doing well. I don't know why I chose to be honest in this moment and not any other moment, but I was just, just felt like I could be honest. And I said, I'm not doing well. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, I mean, I'm really frustrated because I've been living here for about four or five months and I can't figure you guys out. And I know you all have this God thing and the Christian thing, but it's not the typical thing that I've been exposed to that repels me and, and I want nothing to do with because it's all about rules and not about relationship. But you guys are all about relationship and not just relationship with each other, but relationship with this God. And this God seems to love you and I can't figure that out because the God who, who I know is the God who allowed my parents to become divorced, who allowed my family to become ravaged by the by the the reckoning of life 
And my own life was just an absolute mess and disaster. And I said, I can't believe in a God like that. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, I'm so angry at, at whoever this God is that you speak of because he seems to love you, but not me. And he seems to love all these other families, but not our family. And this is my older brother I'm talking to. I'm like, you've got to understand this. And he said, I think you should tell him that. Hold on, I just told you I don't think I believe in this God. You want me to go talk to a God I don't believe in? And he said, yeah, I, I do. I think, I think he'd love to hear you share these things. And, and I, th- I think you just need to let him know how you feel. He's a big guy. He can handle himself. And I thought, well, what do I got to lose? So we went back to the condo, went into his bedroom. He was the only person that didn't share a room. You know, every other room we had like eight guys living, you know, on top of each other for the most part so we could afford the rent in La Jolla, California. And so I go into his room. We sit on the floor and he says, okay, well, just go ahead and tell, tell God what, you, what you're thinking and how you're feeling about all this stuff. That feels weird. He said, just tell him. He's listening. I know it sounds weird, but he's li- in the same way that I'm sitting here listening to you, he's listening to you. And I said, all right. So I started to share. And at first it was like, well, you know, um, holy art, most thou art, father, you know, because I didn't want to get struck by lightning because, you know, that's what I grew up thinking, that if you in any way dishonored God the Father, that you would be struck by lightning. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, you know, and, but as I got going, I warmed up. And then as I got warmed up, I thought, ooh, this is my opportunity. Because my brother told me I could. I want to give you a piece of my mind. I'm going to let you know what I've been thinking and feeling over all these years. And so I start venting. I let it all out. And it comes out and it comes out. And the more I let out, the darker it gets, the more intense it gets. And before I know it, I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs at God. And I'm just pouring out all of my frustration and anger. And honestly, just hatred for all the stuff that's happened in my family's life for all the things that I've seen happen in the world around me. And I got to a point where I just said, God, I can't believe that you love me. I can't believe that you love me. And my brother was reading some scripture just very graciously. And I don't remember what scripture he read, but as he read the scripture, it would make me even more angry because I just felt like I can't believe that. I can't believe what you're saying. And, and, and so I would just, you know, clasp my hands over my face and I'm just snot running everywhere. And I had a vision. I didn't know it was a vision then. I know now, but then I just thought it was this crazy picture that I couldn't get rid of in my mind. And it was a picture of this old, frail, decrepit man with long white hair and a long beard on his hands and knees at the edge of a raging river. And he's there at the edge of the river and he's lapping like a dog at the edge of the the river trying to get some water. And the voice from the river says, come in, come in. And I'm thinking, you gotta be nuts. That's the dumbest advice I've ever heard. Come in. He's a frail old man. He's going to drown in like three seconds. Duh. That's dumb. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this is really weird. Right? So the vision's gone. My brother keeps reading scripture. And at some point, I don't know what happened. But as I kept saying out loud, I don't believe you love me. I don't believe you love me. Something happened in my heart that I cannot explain. But it happened. And before I knew it, I was beginning to say, God, you love me. God, you love me. God, you love me. God, you love me. You love me. And I had another vision of this frail old man standing at the very bottom of what would have been the equivalent of Niagara Falls and this thunderous waterfall that should have annihilated this little old man, should have crushed him as I'm watching this picture in my mind unravel. He's instead standing there with his hands like this. Now you just kind of see the silhouette of his body and this raging water pounding upon him, but not crushing him. I didn't understand it until this moment happened where I went from looking at the man to becoming the man. 
And the picture was paralleled by the experience inside and even physically of this raging waterfall of God's love and grace and mercy, cleansing and washing me afresh and making me new. And it was all that hatred and anger and frustration and bitterness being cleansed out of It felt like every fiber of my being. And I sat and went from screaming and crying in anger to to weeping in joy, full recognition of what was going on. And I wept for probably the better part of 30 or 40 minutes, just saying, God, you love me. God, you love me. God, you love me. My life has never been the same. But I believe that moment was possible because there were a group of guys who decided together with my older brother to live a life of compassion, to allow themselves to become a family that spans more than just one or two people and more than just bloodlines, to create a group of people who together can shoulder the weight of mission to broken people like myself who invited me not only into their family, but into their story so that I eventually began to find my story in their story until the moment that night where I met Jesus. And the compass that I had seen my brother and his friends using that empowered them to live a life of blessing and goodness was suddenly put into the palm of my own hand. And from that day forward, my life has been about learning to live with that compass, how to function as a growing part of God's rescue team. But doing it, not just myself, my wife and my kids, but doing it together with other families as we come together in things called life groups. And to commit ourselves to being his followers as a rescue team, as a family on mission. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and they're going to close us out in a song of worship, but I just want to pray for us because I think the Lord put on my heart that today was a day of stirring our hearts, not a day of giving all kinds of practical handles. Those are the things that we're going to learn in the weeks and months and years to come. But today, a a time of stirring, a time of reconnecting us to the reason we're on the earth, the call of what it means to be one of his children that we would move beyond just being the lost who have been found, but we would become the found who are growing and the growing who are being empowered to be sent, not by ourselves, but in community on mission to become those who rescue other people here in, in this place called Anchorage. So for those of you who just feel like, gosh, you know what? I feel the Lord speaking to me. I want to move in that direction. Maybe you are already moving in this direction, but you feel like I want to take another step. And maybe the step for you today is that you are lost and you need to be found. You don't believe in the love of God. You've become embittered and hardened and frustrated because of the brokenness of the world that you live in and of your own life. And if that's you today, Jesus is welcoming you to come in and to experience his presence and his power to begin to transform your life and to transform the world through you.
Maybe for some of us, it's just deciding that we're going to move beyond the, the cruise liner into the battleship. We're going to move beyond the refugee camp to becoming a part of the rescue team. And, and we want to step into whatever that means. Maybe it means becoming a part of a life group or as a life group, really saying we want to function as the rescue team. How do we do that? How are we going to be trained for it? And for some of us who've been living out on the edge as a part of the rescue team, maybe we just need to be reaffirmed today and encouraged that we're on the right track. So for, for whoever might just connect and say, yeah, I, f- I find myself in one of those categories. Just put your hand up. I want to just pray a blessing over you. It's nothing crazy, just a little blessing. If anybody connects, go ahead and put your hand up real quick. Leave it up. I just want to see, see those people. I want to pray for you specifically. Okay, keep your hands up. Jesus, we thank you that your invitation to us is more than that we would just be saved, but that we would become those who help you save. That we would become more than just the rescued, but we would become the rescuers. That we would join in your mission. And so God, I pray for these who've raised their hand and those who who are still wrestling with the message today, that you would embolden them, encourage them, inspire them to take another step today. Just to take the next step, not to become superheroes overnight, not to become Navy SEALs overnight, but just to take the next step toward becoming a part of your rescue team. And so I bless these people in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship him. people. Go forth and send out your light. Light that saved us, Lord. Be bearers of that light for other people. Let the power of God fall down on us. Let your power fall down right now. Let the power of God fall down on us. Let your power fall down right now. Let the Spirit of God pour out on us. Let your Spirit pour out right now. Let the Spirit of God pour out on us. Let your Spirit pour out right now. For your glory, for your glory, and you only. What you say is what we'll do. Let your passion become action. Holy Spirit, come through. Jesus, we rely to glorify your name. Let your spirit rise among us now as we say, Jesus, move. Right now, let the love of God come alive in us. 
Sunday.